Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Long Short. Today we will focus on asset management regulation in relation to financial stability and specifically we're going to look into how the admittedly uncatchy acronym of NBFI or non-bank financial intermediation has captured the attention of global regulators and standard setters. NBFI could well be a term that you've heard or maybe read about but have not had the time or frankly the inclination to find out more about. However, it will dominate the regulatory landscape going forward and so we felt it was high time that we did a dedicated episode on it. Just to give you a sense of the scope of the topic, NBFIs encompass a diverse range of entities including money market funds, hedge funds, private equity and debt firms along with other financial intermediaries that engage in liquidity, credit or maturity transformation. While all these entities are already regulated, global regulators are looking to add another layer of rules aimed at financial stability. And given all the recent noise around how these entities, many of which include our members, should be treated, we have the great privilege to host some of the most well-placed people in the financial sector to give their insights into this lively debate. First, we have Martin Maloney, Secretary General of IOSCO, the global standard-setting body for securities markets. And he is joined by Carl Watcher, who is General Counsel at Magnetar Capital, as well as being Amos Chair. To lead the discussion, we have brought in Yuri Kroll, Deputy CEO and Global Head of Government Affairs at AMA, who will be much better equipped to keep up with today's guests than I am, given he contributes to this space every single day. Your regular hosts, myself and Tom Keogh, will be back next time. But for now, I'll hand over to Yuri. Hello, Martin, and uh, hello, Carl. Uh, welcome to uh, AMA's Long Short Podcast. Uh, delighted to have you over at a time when uh, the topics we're going to discuss are really top of mind and not just in the policymaking community, but also the industry. So uh, glad to have the top uh, global regulator and the top industry representative uh, here to talk about asset management regulation, in particular in relation to financial stability. Uh, before we begin, Martin, maybe um, uh, start by you introducing yourself and uh, IOSCO and what the organization does. Uh, fairly briefly. Yuri, it's, a, it's great uh, to be here and thank you very much for having me. IOSCO, Global Standard Setting Body for uh, Securities Markets. What we basically do is we set standards, but also a lot of supporting good practices that we ask people around the world to comply with so that financial markets all work well together. And we have just about 95% of the global financial markets signed up as members and most regulators conform to all our principles and standards. And the tough stuff that we have to do now is all about the new areas like sustainable finance and crypto, but also important stuff like financial stability that we're going to discuss today to keep those markets stable. And it's a a job that requires us to work with a lot of jurisdictions and a lot of other global standard setters around the world. Me, I've been doing this job for just under two years, and um, it's a great time to be doing this job. There's a a lot going on, as you say. Thanks, Martin. Um, Carl? A few words about background. Sure. Thanks, Yuri. And uh, it's great to be here today. So I'm the general counsel of Magnetar Capital. Magnetar is a multi-strategy alternative asset manager founded in 2005. Um, we currently have uh, $13 billion in assets under management, and we pursue a number of strategies. The precise mix has evolved quite a bit over the 18 years we've been in business, but um, today our, our core businesses are alternative credit and fixed income, 
energy and infrastructure investing, healthcare investing, and systematic investing. Um, the largest of these being alternative credit with uh, around 8 billion of the AUM. Uh, my responsibilities as general counsel are obviously the areas of legal and compliance. And so I have uh, you know, great interest in you know, how the regulatory framework develops globally and applies to our business. And I guess I, I should also mention, you know, the other hat that I'm wearing today is, uh, is my AMA hat. Uh, I've been a director on the AMA council for, I think, about 10 years now. And for the last couple of years, I've been chair of the council um, and enjoy that quite a bit. Thank you. So let's jump uh, right into it and let's uh, try to, um, in, a, in a good fashion, uh, attack a, an acronym, NBFI, uh, Non-Bank Financial Intermediation. Sounds extremely dry and um, complicated. What is this term about? Can you tell us a, a bit about the, the history of it, Martin, because there is some history here. And what do you sense are some of the core issues when it comes to asset management and funds in particular when, as you said, you're trying to, as a global policymaking community, make the markets more stable? Uh, hopefully not, not the stability of a graveyard that, that we're thinking of here, but um, a functionally stable. Um, Martin? So let me go way back to before the big crash of two, the crisis of 2008, when the term shadow banking started to be used by some analysts to try to explain some of the things that uh, banks were doing before 2008 in order to move assets off their balance sheet. So they would lend out, let's say, and then they would think, okay, this is burning up too much of our capital, so we'll move it off balance sheet into a separate entity. We'll get other people to invest in it, and we will get ourselves out of the picture, uh, but the loans will still be out there. There'll be investors, there'll be loans, hopefully being serviced, and uh, that works for us, and it should work for investors. That was the kind of thing that bankers were doing way back then and it was called shadow banking because it was in essence still traditional banking activities but they then moved it off the balance sheet and the people started to get a bit worried about sort of how does this work because one of the things that happens when you move it off the balance sheet is the regulatory frameworks don't apply uh, that apply to banks so after 2008 when we all started to look at the crash and the crisis that happened then and the impact of that a lot of people thought shadow banking, as they've called it, was a big part of the problem. And there was a lot of evidence to support that. And when the Financial Stability Board was set up to try to deal with keeping the whole financial system stable, they looked at shadow banking and decided it was a big thing for them to look at. But as they looked into it in a little bit of detail, they thought, mm, you can't just deal with banks being involved in these types of non-bank uh, lending and other and other activities, you've got to look at everybody who's who is who's involved or could be involved in that. So after a surprising amount of debate, you know, people love to talk about a word or a phrase or a label, and they will talk about it for ages. They finally dropped the word shadow banking and came up with this lovely little acronym, non-bank financial intermediation that just rolls off the tongue. And it was an attempt to capture just an awful lot of different activities that are out there that are really quite complicated to describe. But 
it was based upon the idea we've got to get to grips with all of these activities and the way any of these activities can affect the stability of markets. That was the massive ambition that the FSB set itself. And IOSCO was absolutely with them in that. We had added an additional third goal for IOSCO in relation to financial stability in order to be a full part of that debate. And we've been working really closely with the FSB ever since. And the different parts of the system that we've looked at, um, we've looked at them to varying degrees in lots of different ways, and it would take me too long to, to give you all of them. But in essence, uh, the big ones we looked at were, number one, uh, counterparty risk. So you engage in a derivative contract or something like that with a counterparty, and then there's a crisis in the market, and you start to worry about whether the, the person on the other side of your contract is going to live up to his side of the bargain. And that makes you do weird things that destabilize markets. And we came up with a mechanism to try to limit that, which was clearing. I won't explain to you what clearing is in detail at this point, but it's just the idea that you give up the contract so you don't have to worry about what your counterparty is going to do and whether he's going to fail or not. And the second thing we did was to look at investment funds. Because since the 1990s, investment funds have become a huge part of the financial market. Lots and lots of people collectively investing their money in markets. And we were aware that when a crisis happened, lots of people are looking for cash and they sell their assets and they sell their shares in those investment funds. But in order to give them back their cash, the investment funds have to sell their assets. And that makes markets more and more unstable. So what the FSB and ourselves did was to focus on both these two big issues and try to make the system work a little bit better and be a little bit less unstable than it appeared to be in 2008. And it's, those are such a big job, each of them, that we've been at it ever since and we're still at it. Um, I guess we've we've progressed from from being um, part of the shadow banking sector to, to becoming non-banks. Um, uh, it, it's still a, a fairly interesting concept in terms of uh, how you divide the universe of what one could also dub capital market activity um, and whether or not it, it's conceptually useful to call a plane a non-car and, and uh, approach uh, a, let's say, regulation of aviation from a non-car uh, regulatory perspective. But we are where we are. And I don't know if, if you, Carl, have have any feelings about it. As, as Martin said, uh, lots of de debate and, and lots of ink has been spilled about um, these uh, labels. Do, do you think it's, it doesn't matter at all? Is it, is it useful um, in terms of how we describe things at the policy level? Well, yeah, Yuri, I, I, I do think it matters. And I appreciate that we've moved beyond the term shadow banking because it's just a uh, you know, very unhelpful and pejorative term. Um, but I would say that non-bank financial intermediation brings some of that baggage along with it. What I mean by that is there's a subtext that if you're a non-bank financial intermediary, there's a suggestion that somehow these firms are doing things that are bank-like but have cleverly escaped bank regulation through some obscure loophole and that the job of regulators is clearly to close that loophole and impose bank-like regulation over these non-banks who are doing bank-like things. I recognize fully that the debate is way more subtle than that. And certainly, Martin, you're sensitive to that. But when 
when uh, you read about, you know, what's happening in the press and you have sort of some very short, not so nuanced speeches with sound bites, this is the subtext that comes across. And, and I think it's unfortunate and sort of creates sort of a default outcome that will, of course, bank like macroprudential oversight is the answer unless someone can persuade me otherwise. You need to have a really good reason why non-banks should not be regulated like banks. So, so to me, that's, that's a problem. I think it also obscures the fact that there's a whole lot of differentiated activities going on within this large group of non-banks and that one type of, of regulatory oversight um, is not necessarily appropriate for all of these different activity sets. So I, you know, I do think that, that nomenclature matters. I recognize that at some point you have to have some terminology that everyone can agree upon, but I hope that people will be intellectually honest about the limitations of, you know, categorizing the whole universe of market participants that are not banks as non-banks. Yeah, and and, and I guess we are slowly moving to, away from, from just referring to the umbrella term and, and starting to drill deep into money market fund policy. Um, and now, um, as, as Martin's foreshadowed, uh, open-end funds, liquidity risk management, which is uh, something that that um, has been uh, just consulted upon by both the FSB and IOSCO. So, so liquidity risks in, in funds, um, clearly one of those um, areas of focus. Um, let's, uh, let's see what, what is being um, proposed here by, by the global regulators. Martin, can you share with us what, what are the, the principal changes and recommendations of both FSB and IOSCO in this area? Yeah, can I give you a bit of history, Yuri, just to, just to help uh, your audience just understand the, the additional changes we're making. So what's a bit weird about investment funds is that they, they invest in assets that can take sometimes days, but sometimes weeks and sometimes even months to sell. But they offer people effectively overnight liquidity. You can get your money back from us more or less anytime you want it with a short delay. And that's the thing that has worried regulators. The fact that there's that gap between how long it takes to actually sell your assets and, and, and the promise you're making on the other side to people that you're going to give them liquidity at short notice. So back in 2017, the FSB issued a document that sort of highlighted this issue and looked to us and pointed at us and said, you've got to do something about this. And what we then said in response in 2018 was, okay, here's a recommendation to all our investment funds as to how they should manage their liquidity so as not to become part of the problem when markets go into crisis. And we've given the industry a few years to implement that policy. And now we've gone back and we've looked, and we particularly looked after the COVID crisis. We looked to see what happened to financial markets during COVID, also when the Ukraine war was starting, but, but particularly during COVID. And we looked to see if it all worked. And we found some good news, which is to, to a significant extent, liquidity risk management investment funds was much better than it had been years previously. We also found some bad news, which is that you still saw a few problems in the way that the industry was managing its liquidity. And we've zoned in on two. And that's what we've published now. The first one we've zoned in on is um, the fact that 
industry is very often still offering overnight liquidity in relation to some really very illiquid assets. So, so they invest in really illiquid assets, but they still promise you overnight liquidity. And we had asked them to redesign their funds so that they would not do that in relation to the most illiquid assets. So the FSB is now coming out, calling that out and saying, okay, a lot done, but more to do. And the more to do seems to be focused on this area. But the second thing we've looked at is, and this gets a bit technical, what do we call, um, is the what happens when you go to get your money back in a crisis and what price you get for 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 the for uh, uh, your shares and there's a slightly complicated argument that basically if anybody leaves a collective investment scheme particularly during a crisis they leave the people behind with a problem and they should pay a little bit of an extra cost in 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 order to leave and the difficulty is that while a lot of investment funds do that and make them pay that extra cost. There isn't consistency in the way they calculate how they impose that extra cost on the redeeming investor. So what we've come up with is a quite detailed guidance document saying to the industry, this is how you should do it, this is how you should think about it, and these are the different things you should take into account when you work out these uh, this, this cost that you impose on the redeeming investor. It's often talked about as swing pricing, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. There's actually, we've actually listed five different ways it can be done in our, in our consultation document. So we're going out to industry now and saying in relation to both of those, what do you think? Have we got the analysis right? Is this, is this a, a good way to get better at liquidity management than we've, than we've got to before this? Great. And um, Carl, when, when I, here, Martin, talk about uh, daily liquidity um, and illiquid assets. That that's not the picture we see in the in the hedge fund industry necessarily, right? I mean, um, maybe wearing your your hat as a an industry association leader, do do you see that? Because historically, we've seen hedge funds with infrequent redemptions, uh, with with gates that are both ex ante and exposed, um, and and a fairly uh, small, if, if negligent, proportion of hedge fund managers, even in, the, in 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 areas or strategies that are very liquid, to to offer daily liquidity. So, so do you see this liquidity mismatch as, as manifesting itself um, significantly in the hedge fund industry, or do you think this is something to to worry about if if there are additional tools imposed, uh, like the ones that Martin talked about? Yeah, Yuri. I mean, I think you're right to observe that there's a big distinction between the um, the open-end funds that are referred to in the IOSCO and FSB reports and private funds that happen to be open-end as well. Um, I know that, uh, that in the report, IOSCO mentions that, uh, that open-end funds exclude money market funds and ETFs. And I think it would be you know, helpful to sort of emphasize that, that, and I think there is some emphasis, that these are daily dealing funds that are, that are the most concern and not sort of the longer duration funds. So I guess as, uh, you know, as part of the private funds industry, when I read this, I, I'm sure that there will be a robust response from the uh, registered funds industries and the use its managers and, and so forth about uh, the implications for those products. As a private funds guy, my concern is that, you know, solutions come about that make sense for that segment and then at some point, there's an assumption that we'll 
if they're open-end funds in the private space, then why shouldn't we just apply the same logic to them? And I think that's where, um, you know, we, we would have major problems. Um, to go back to your question, Yuri, you know, there are a, a wide variety of liquidity risk management tools already employed in the private fund space. These are these are uh, contractual fund provisions that have been developed commercially through the interaction of managers and investors over many years. And there tends to be a concern on both the part of the manager and the investor that the liquidity terms of the fund match up with or are appropriate in light of the assets in the portfolio and their liquidity and expected duration and what have you. And so I guess as an initial matter, I would say that I don't think I've ever seen a private fund with daily liquidity, not that it's impossible, but I've never seen it in all of my time working in this business. It's much more common to have, you know, the shorter end of the liquidity spectrum, monthly or quarterly liquidity with a long notice period. The shortest notice period I've ever seen is 30 days, but it's much more common to see 90 day notice. So you have to give 90 days of notice before the quarterly redemption date coming up. And in the illiquid space, you know, it can be much longer. So there's semi-annual liquidity is not uncommon, annual liquidity. Um, sometimes on open-end private funds, there can be initial lockup periods of a year or two. And then in addition to all of that, there are gates, as, as Yuri alluded to. Um, prior to 2008, the great financial crisis, there were fund level gates. So no more than X percent of the entire fund could come out on any given redemption date. Post financial crisis, investors um, expressed a clear preference for investor level gates. So any given investor would know that it could only redeem X percent of its remaining investment on any redemption date so that they knew with precision what they would be able to get and it wouldn't vary based on the behavior of other investors. So these tools um, have been around for a long time. They're widely accepted. There's robust disclosure. Investor expectations are, are fully aligned with them. And, and I think all of that is extremely important. Yeah. And as you said, that the fund level gates tended to, to drive this uh, preemptive uh, behavior that would have um, exacerbated the problems that Martin had talked about, where, where certain investors might be um, redeeming early uh, and, and leaving the, the rest of the investors less well off uh, with perhaps less liquid assets or harder to value assets. And, and that was one of the main changes that we saw post GFC indeed. Um, and and um, hopefully we'll not see the, the coming back of fund, uh, fund level gates or not in, in isolation. Um, so so it, it appears as though liquidity risk management in the alt space is, is relatively well um, managed. Um, it, it is not uniformly managed given the, the huge variety of, of strategies, but, but it is negotiated. And, and I think it, it is also, as you hi highlighted, Carl, correctly, not just an issue for the managers, but also for the investors and the investors are themselves um, asking and, and making sure that the, the structures that they invest in are um, aligned and, and that uh, the problems Martin had uh, described doesn't don't occur or don't don't necessarily um, exacerbate things further. Um, so so maybe changing gears then if if, if um, <laughs> uh, we've taken care of liquidity so to speak, um, 
let's 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 look at leverage um, because this has been uh, uh, also one of the, the core topics when when discussing potential market impacts of, of unwinding of positions. We've had a lot of discussion around the March 2020 situation in the U.S. Treasury market and the low uh, role of of uh, uh, leveraged players in that space. Um, Martin, where are we in in that debate and reflection at the global level? You know, last time we saw we saw IOSCO come out with some recommendations around the definition of data gathering. But is there anything new that that we can uh, look forward to? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if look forward to it is the right word, Yuri, from the industry point of view. <laughs> but certainly it's it's on our agenda and it's on our agenda for a very good reason. I mean, just sort of doing a segue from the last part of our conversation to this, if you think about what Carl and, and yourself have just said about about uh, uh, the way in which uh, uh, the hedge fund sector and private funds uh, approach this question of liquidity, it seems to me to be eminently sensible. They understand that if you uh, allow too much liquidity uh, uh, in your offering, you will undermine your investment strategy. And therefore, they're very careful to design it in this sector so as so as not to do that and to harm the other in, uh, investors. So that actually means this sector is actually an example of what I would think of as good practice uh, for other parts of the fund sector to look at and to, to, to reflect on why they don't do the same thing. Uh, and and uh, But then you come to an area where maybe some private funds are, are more interesting to us from a financial stability point of view. Because if you look at behaviors in a period of stress, the behaviors that most concern you are the behaviors of those people who are in the market with a leveraged position very often people with margin calls. So they're going to be asked for more security right in the middle of a period of stress or asked for more cash and they don't have it and they start doing desperate things and things that are not really in the long-term interest of their investors in that period of stress in order to deal with, with the consequences of having leveraged up their investment or of having hedged their investment in ways that mean they face margin calls. Either way, you can find yourself as a leveraged investor in a period of stress doing things that don't make a lot of sense um, and certainly doing things that can do harm to the stability of markets, namely selling off assets very quickly because you're in trouble and you need cash. So we're interested in leveraged investment. We've done a, a statistical series in relation to the bulk of investment funds, those open-ended investment funds I was just talking about, who do have liquidity problems, but as it turns out, for the most part, don't have leverage problems because for the most part, most of those open-ended funds don't leverage up very much according to, to the statistical data that we've collected. So if we're worried about leverage, we're not worried about them. But then you have to ask yourself, well, who leverages up in marketplaces? Who gets themselves into this situation? And the answer seems to be, um, that you're looking at a lot of mainly unregulated or very minimally regulated entities in, in markets who, who do a lot of that leverage, which means it's difficult for us to get a handle on what they're doing and why they're doing it. But in the next period, we are going to look at how we can engage with this issue and how we can see if there's any sort of controls or frameworks or prudence we can build into the system in relation to leverage so that people will manage their leverage position better. In the end, 
managing leverage in a crisis might actually be a liquidity issue. So if you have managed your liquidity well, so you've got sufficient cash available that you're not doing silly things in order to raise cash in a period of stress, that would mean you'll be able to manage your leverage through a period of stress. But we have a lot of work to do, I think, in this area before we draw any definite conclusions. And I would think 2024 is the year when IOSCO and the FSB will focus on, on leverage. Right. Um, Carl, any, any reactions around the sort of descriptions of the risks that leverage may or may not pose to, to markets and, and thoughts around what is being done internally by the industry to manage those risks? Because obviously we do have self-interest in survival and good performance. I guess as a general matter, though, speaking about leverage, I think you know it's really important to remember that, that uh, leverage is not the same thing across every type of portfolio. There are different sources of leverage and there are different types of assets that have different you know, degrees of risk, right? So let's say you have a concentrated portfolio of long equity positions and you deploy a lot of leverage against those positions. That's, that's a very different animal from an arbitrage portfolio where you know you have long and short positions that offset each other and and a, a great deal of diversification i think you can deploy a lot more leverage against that portfolio and feel confident that you'd be able able to weather a crisis and indeed i think that um, leverage providers are more willing to uh, to extend credit in the context of those portfolios versus you know, the initial hypothetical, you know, highly concentrated long only portfolio. So I, I think that while it, it does make great sense for the regulatory community to take a good look at leverage and what's happening and what sort of risks are out there, I think it's also important to be mindful that, um, you know, that there, there are different sorts of activities there are different implications for leverage. Um, based on the way it's being used and the sources of lo- those leverage, as well as the policymaking tools available are not simply to you know, impose new requirements on the funds or the fund managers, but also to look at the leverage providers who tend to be heavily supervised already. AMA is pleased to announce that AMA putting ESG into practice conference will be returning to London on the 7th of September, 2023. Over the course of the day, discussions will address the basics of compliance, key regulatory developments, and the wider trends and themes that are guiding firms' approaches to responsible investment. The goal is to give attendees a set of practical insights that can immediately add value to their business. Panels, keynote speakers, and workshops will explore the practical aspects of ESG integration for alternative asset managers with a focus on regulatory developments affecting the industry. Interested in finding out more? Visit the AMA website to register now. But Martin, to, to, to your point, the, the, the narrative has, has oftentimes been, and sometimes that, that does indeed occur, of this sort of the forced selling um, that is triggered by the inability to effectively roll over a leveraged position, then exacerbating moves in, in the market. And what was interesting um, in the analysis of the March 2020 um, episode and the behavior of hedge funds that was just released um, in, a, in, a, in an excellent study that was done by a, a whole bunch of Fed economists, I think, and we'll link to that study in the, in the notes. And what it showed was that, A, financing was still available, 
uh, to the hedge fund managers who were running the arbitrage uh, strategies they, they were looking at. And that the main driver was actually internal risk management models, right, in terms of how the, the funds were reducing their positions um, in the market as, as the stresses and liquidity started to dry up. So um, it's interesting that that the the reasons for, for why people may change behavior in the, in the market might be different. And sometimes it's actually regulatory reasons, because at least in Europe, we do have a requirement for managers to set risk limits and to abide by them and, and to try to ensure that, you know, obviously not mechanically, but but that the managers um, effectively uh, do, do not cross those uh, uh, risk limits in a, in a reckless manner, right? So, so I don't know if you'd have any uh, thoughts or, or uh, comment on, on that and, and how, how one can think about what's the best manner in addressing leverage because I think Carl has suggested that you know one way to do it is, is to look at the funds themselves and try to sort of micromanage the fund exposures and how, how they do things or to look broadly at the system and, and say what is the sort of optimal level of leverage that can be calibrated in the system that is agnostic as to the type of an investor, right? Via margin requirements or, or um, let's say, minimum haircuts in, in the repo market. So I think this is actually really going to be quite complicated. Uh, and, and, and I don't think we should cut off any route of investigation at this point in time. We need to look at this from multiple angles to see what's the best way to come at it. Maybe the first thing I'd say is if you, is maybe try to define the problem a little bit better, at least than than I have already. If you look at the recent LDI episode in 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 London, where pension funds had used various strategies that you might describe as hedging strategies rather than even even as leveraging up strategies, uh, in order to match their assets and their liabilities, but those strategies left them with margin calls uh, in in certain situations, and they proved to find it really difficult to meet those margin calls. And all sorts of consequences happened for a number of weeks in the UK market that forced the Bank of England to come into that marketplace as a result. I would see an episode like that, which as as actually part of the problem we're trying to address. So it's not strictly speaking just to try to deal with people who leverage up their positions in order to increase the potential return. There, there are other possible reasons why people might engage in some of these uh, transactions that might create this behavior that we're worried about. And one of the things about that episode, which I think I'm not being unfair to anyone if I generalize, is if you look at how they tended to manage those situations, they did have a liquidity management strategy, and they had certain assumptions built into their liquidity management strategy about what a stress situation would look like. It just turned out that the stressed situation they faced was a hell of a lot more stressed than the than the situation that they had done their done their their stress testing on, and that's one part of the problem. And we've seen other episodes, sort of strictly speaking, unrelated to what we're talking about. Let's say with Silicon Valley Bank, where you had depositor runs going so much faster than anyone thought depositor runs could go. So you're seeing a lot of behaviors in markets or phenomena in markets that are new that are not easily factored into stress testing. And that's part of the problem that we're dealing with, that markets are not just behaving as they have supposedly always behaved. And that makes our job particularly difficult. So I think what we're going to do, or certainly what I would hope the FSB would do, is to look at this in lots of different ways. Look at the lenders, as Carl suggested. I think we do need to look at the lenders. 
and what and how they're you know how they're deciding who's a who's a good person to lend to and who isn't and what's good enough security and and what isn't look at the borrowers yes look at the head funds and family offices and others who might be engaged in this activity that's helpful although actually i have to say i'm not sure how much we're going to get out of doing that uh, but let's have a look anyway we might get at least incre increased transparency that would help everybody else in the market to understand where the risk is in the market and where the concentrations of positions are but it might also be useful to look at particular markets like particular like treasury repo or, so, or something like that and just see if in particular markets the market structure is creating incentives to let's say lend out at really low rates uh, that isn't very uh, prudently done and there's a lot of competitive pressure between lenders so i think we have to look at this in a number of different ways sitting here today i'm not sure where we're going to end up the and but i would say that's a good thing because we're open to the analysis we're open to the data what the data tells us we're actually open to what industry uh, argues to us about where we should end up here and what's a clever way to do this but i'm not sure as i sit here today maybe yourself and carl could 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 disabuse me of this uh, but i'm not sure the industry knows what's a smart way for us to do this either at this point so we we all may have to have some quite grown-up conversations in order to figure this one out Martin, of course the industry knows um <laughs> and, and we'll 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 uh, no doubt explore this in the in the next podcast uh, because we, we would uh, need another hour to, to, to discuss probably but it's it's heartening to hear that that uh, you know the, the approach you're uh, suggesting is is that based on on data and calibration because what we are seeing now in the EU in particular is an approach to leverage, which um, kind of shuns that. Um, what I'm referring to is the latest AI FMD negotiation, whereby there was a proposal in the council to put a leverage limit on the, the private credit um, uh, end of the spectrum and uh, have loan origination funds conform to that leverage limit, which was uh, negotiated uh, in, a, in a manner of a... Um, I don't know. Just, I, would, I would describe it as a, uh, let's say, uh, uh, when you when you go to buy a, a bread somewhere in an open market and, and you can haggle, um, and 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 so the numbers were flying from you know 100 percent to 300, and now we don't know where we're settled. But um, what what I'm worried about there is is really that 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 we we might be in, in this example actually directly hampering and, and in the hedge fund as well the, the the ability of the fund industry to provide some real um, good for the real economy right that, that, that we might be without having gone through the calibration process properly imposing severe restrictions that will then not allow this uh, non-bank intermediation to occur which could have significant impact on the real economy I mean Car Carl I know you're quite quite close to the to the direct lending space, so, so maybe you have, a, have some thoughts on that. I'm very comforted by uh, the approach that Martin described to sort of looking at looking at different types of borrowers, looking at different the lenders, looking at different market segments to try to get arms around like where is the you know where is there a problem uh, with leverage and what is the appropriate way to attack that and to you know, to have a robust interaction with the industry and the search for, for good solutions. But, um, but I'm, I'm also very concerned that we might not land on the right solution and, and there are unforeseen consequences of that. Um, I think that uh, the private credit story 
over the last 15 years has been a real success, um, not only for, for private fund, private credit managers and, and private credit investors, but for the economy more broadly. And I guess, you know, I, I would say just a shorthanded, you know, AMA puts out a report every year called Financing the Economy, uh, AMA and the Alternative Credit Council. That's available on the AMA website. And, uh, you know, it, it goes into good detail about the involvement of, of private credit funds and how they interact with the real economy and, you know, what some of the, some of the good things that are going on, they're being funded um, through these vehicles. And I think, uh, you know, just as a general statement, I would say that since 2008, there's been a great pullback um, from the, you know, regulated bank sector um, from a lot of areas where they've historically been active. And that's in no small part due to the regulatory response to the great financial crisis. Not to say that that's inappropriate at all, um, but I think that if you're going to sort of have a world where where regulated banks can't, you know, serve those sectors of the economy, it would be, uh, you know, a real problem to then sort of squelch that activity coming from the uh, the types of firms that have stepped up to meet that demand. If, if there are leverage limits, you know, you could have private credit funds who are unable to meet their, um, their investors' preferred return hurdles and that sort of thing. And so they just have to get out of the, out of the activity entirely. And, and then you're, you're leaving segments of the economy without sources of funding. Yeah. And I think the main concern is, is, is that the, the tools are, are used in a way that are disproportionately um, uh, on, on a different end of the spectrum when it comes to the calibration. So, so to give you an example, the types of leverage limits we're talking about um, in the private credit industry, if they are imposed indeed by the FMD, we would be, um, you know, in the in the banking world, uh, talking about 20 times more uh, of, of leverage um, being run by the, the banking sector for the same kind of activity. Um, and also in a, in a vehicle usually that is not offering daily liquidity, so it's a closed-end vehicle. So, so it, there's there's the the use of similar tools as in banking, but at at a very different scale, I think, and that's 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 been one of the main concerns. Um, um, Martin, to conclude, if, you know, if if you had a, a magic wand um, and could do something relatively quickly. Um, what would that be that that you think could improve uh, financial stability in relation to, you know, the asset management industry or, or even broadly uh, capital markets? What what are some of your uh, dream goals here uh, in in your next uh, you know in the next two to three years? Yeah, some people might not like them, but uh, I'll say them anyway if you don't mind. <laughs> um, some of them, uh, I'll tell you what, we have done a lot of work, and so has the FSB, on trying to look at markets and see how they actually behave. And if you go back through the documents that we have published on uh, uh, the COVID uh, experience and others, you will see the same phrase again and again, which is, we, didn't, we couldn't get the data to figure this out, what was really going on here. And the degree of knowledge that regulators and the, the FSB community have on exactly how the dynamics of markets work is just not good enough for, the, for us to devise policies that are subtle enough and careful enough in order to meet the needs that industry rightly say to us, 
don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg in the in the process of trying to solve the problem but we cannot currently get the kind of detailed information on lots of aspects of what goes on in financial markets in order to do our job in the kind of subtle and complex way that we're being asked to do our job and the problem there is we've all had an experience over the last 10 years or last 12 years of regulators trying to get more data from industry that's been very expensive for industry the way it's been done the kind of data we've got the where it's held the lack of global uh, consolidation of data, none of this is really working well for any of us as, as policymakers. And perhaps it's linked to an even more fundamental problem, which it seems to me we're still working with 20th century concepts of periodic regulatory reporting by entities that just don't seem to me to be working well anymore. We're just not sharing the kind of information that allows us to re do really effective data-based policy making and that that to me is a big problem if you have that one yuri i'll just wave it and solve that problem um i i think i i'd be fired if i if i if i had that one and, and it led to a real-time data gathering from all financial market participants <laughs> um so, so yes indeed many many might not like um uh, that, that idea but um carl do you do you concur in terms of just maybe just the data picture, or what, what's your what's your view on that? And um, in a, in a similar um, manner, are there any things that you ideally would like the regulatory community to finally see uh, and realize and and implement in a way that that really works for the industry? Sure. So, uh, look, in terms of data, I think that you know better informed policymaking is good for everyone, um, but at the same time. Uh, you know, there needs to be a recognition that information is not costless, that uh, there have been a, a, a large number of demands on, on the industry over the last 15 years to provide data. It's, it's really, it's imposed a lot of costs, which creates barriers to entry, which are great for the incumbents, but not so good for new entrants. I, I think that um, there should be a recognition that there, there are a variety of sources of data already available to regulators and maybe there's a way to make more efficient use of that data and, and sort of a, a robust look at that. I'm not saying that there hasn't been, but I think that, um, uh, you know, there could be more consistent reporting across different jurisdictions and across different types of market participants. The other thing I would say is that there's a, there's a cost, not just in having to go through the trouble of reporting, but also there's a cost in terms of data being out there. Right. So public reporting of position level information, for example, can have a great cost on, you know, active managers. Right. In terms of having to reveal their intellectual property to competitors, uh, in terms of people, uh, other market participants trading against them in times of stress. Uh, I mean, this is one, one example. And I think, Martin, maybe this is something that should be taken seriously as part of the IOSCO initiative when you're worried about, you know, sort of run on the bank, panic selling during times of stress, you know, if you have fund managers who are under pressure and the, the fact that they are under pressure gets out broadly to market participants and those market participants also have great access to the positions in the portfolios of those managers, it should come as no surprise to anyone that those, you know, well-funded market participants are going to actively trade against 
the manager who they know will have to go through a forced selling exercise at some point, and they'll be able to profit from that. So I think that's something the regulators really ought to take into, into consideration in terms of information costs. Uh, the last thing I'll say on information is that there's a great deal of concern about information security. Um, and we, this is a concern not only from managers, but also by regulators that um, uh, hackers are getting more and more proficient. Managers, market participants are being asked to invest more and more in information security. Um, but when they turn over that information to the you know, government sector, it needs to be, you know, protected there as well. And I think we're all very concerned about the more information that we turn over, the more vulnerable that information is. Okay, so so moving away from uh, from the data question and going to sort of what would be on my wish list if I could wave a magic wand and have a policy outcome, leaving aside any specific policy initiative, what I would wish for is a more deliberate, slow-moving process where um, industry participants are given meaningful opportunities to participate and comment um, and and that those comments are, are taken seriously uh, in the policy process. I think right now in the US, we're looking at a vast number of extremely uh, material changes in in the regulatory framework that are that are being done very quickly, simultaneously with very short comment periods, little time for you know meaningful in-depth uh, interaction between the industry and and the regulators to come up with um, rules that make sense and avoid unintended consequences. And uh, I know that it's uh, it's overly optimistic to expect any changes in that regard. But uh, that would be my wish, is to have a, a more deliberate and better informed process. But I, I, on that note, I, I think uh, I, I can say with a um, good deal of evidence that the Diosco uh, have been amongst those organizations that, that have indeed uh, not just aspired, but, but delivered that, that very high standard of both um, consultation um, and uh, sort of deliberate speed uh, with which issues are tackled, as opposed to just um, getting something done w- without without uh, considering what what the impact might be. So um, that, that that one is nearly granted, I suppose. It remains to be seen whether whether Martin and colleagues continue to to deliver as they have so far. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both for for a very fascinating discussion. We covered everything that really is of importance from data to liquidity and uh, and uh, leverage uh, and risk management. Um, interesting points of agreement, but also um, uh, differences of views. And um, as Martin said, uh, we're nowhere near concluding either at the global or, or at the national level on many of these. So look forward to perhaps a future discussion as, as more policy proposals come out. And uh, as always, Emma will be there to respond and, and provide uh, all we can to inform the debate. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yuri. And thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.